Welcome to the Remote First Podcast. Every week we invite guests from large or innovative companies to share their insights on enabling an equitable and distributed workplace experience. I'm your host, Daphne Laforet. Hey everyone, today I am with Kate Lister, President of Global Workplace Analytics, the most recognized name in remote work for nearly two decades. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, Daphne. Good to be here. Same, same. So happy that you have you here. You've been in remote work for so long, Kate. I cannot believe it's been, what, 20 years that you work on the topic? Almost 20. We didn't call it remote work at the beginning. It was called telework and telecommuting. And it's been through a lot of names. But yes, I've been at this for quite a while. How did you see that evolve from when you say, you know, it used to be telework and now it's remote work? Like, what was that evolution? It seems like about every seven to 10 years, people want to rename it. We went to distributed work. Sometimes it's virtual work. And even within companies, we say that they want to, you know, they want to brand it as their own flexible work. So you just have to go with the flow. It can be annoying at times. <laughs> Can't we just call it what we called it at the beginning? It's the same thing. Or can we just call it work? You know, like today, exactly. this is what it's going to be. This is just work now. Yeah. It's no longer about where we are working from. It's just like, how are we doing our work? Yeah, I've often said that I'll know we're there when we don't have to give it a name. Mm, right. That's cool. And what is your story a little bit just for the audience to get to know you? Like, what is your story and how have you been so involved in the topic of remote work for all this time? Yeah, it's a pretty long story. <laughs> anyway, I started in banking and I spent about 10 years in banking and learned that the corporate life just really wasn't for me. Left and started my own business, helping business owners find financing. Left that and started a vintage airplane ride business, doing rides in 1920s airplanes. Sold that after 16 years and decided that I didn't want to go back to a real job. And, uh, a real and, job. Uh, a real, <laughs> love this idea. <laughs> or a real office. And yeah. decided to write a book about it, about working from home. And I intended it to be a business book, but when I approached the publisher, they said, uh, we don't think businesses will be interested in that, so why don't you write a consumer title? And I wrote Undress for Success, The Naked Truth About Making Money at Home. I know, it was horrible. I begged them not to put bunny slippers on the cover. And what did they put on the cover? Bunny slippers. Bunny slippers. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but it was in doing that, the research for the book, that I really became convinced that nobody had made the business case, the C-suite business case. You know, I was working, I was used to working with presidents of companies and company leadership in the financing business. And, you know, so I know their language, I know how to talk. And it struck me that nobody had really done that with the remote work. And being a banker, I put it in terms of savings. You know, what's an organization likely to save? And also in terms of environmental footprint. And at the time, they didn't care. <laughs> they were more interested in attracting and retaining talent. Then after the recession in 2008, 2009, it became all about saving money. So, you know, it's kind of a pendulum. It swings, it goes, it's gone to sustainability at some point. Right now, obviously, it's swung very far to the attracting and retaining talent. But I still mm -hmm. hear hints of saving money in the conversations. And do you think that's the case? Do you think it is saving people money to go remote? We estimate that a typical employer can save about $11,000 per half-time remote employee per year. That doesn't assume that they give up all of the office space associated with that half-time remote worker or hybrid worker. It kind of takes half of that, you know, so if somebody's half-time, reduce real estate by 25%. But that's not actually the big savings. The big savings or the big financial impact comes from increased productivity. 
And mm-hmm. we've been beating that drum for 20 years and there was always the resistors. And now we've gone through a pandemic and we've proven that people have stayed productive, have been more productive, and still people are questioning that. <laughs> mm. So I think the savings are very much there. Also, it reduces absenteeism, reduces turnover. You know, we're seeing a lot of evidence for that. But it's not like day one, you're going to save the money because there's money that you need to put into the training. There's money that you need to put into equipping the home office that's actually built into that $11,000 in savings. But you know, it's, when you say increased productivity, the CFO wants to touch that. You know, the CFO mm-hmm. wants to see those actual dollars coming into the company. And it's just not easy to see. But now that they're so tuned to attraction and retention, a typical employee at a, you know, a high level in the organization costs, if they leave, it costs the employer between 100 and 200% of their salary, all told. So, you know, you lose a key player. It can easily pay for the entire remote work transition, hybrid work transition for the entire company. And so it kind of becomes a no-brainer when you think about things like that. I mean, I even get down to the point of buy companies at the beginning of the pandemic were troubling over whether to buy their people ergonomic chairs. They could pay for 200 ergonomic chairs with the cost of one workers' comp claim. So, yeah, I think it's probably worth it. (laughs) I'm not sure workers' comp translates exactly. Safety, is that what you call insurance against people getting hurt at the office? Oh, like liability? Yeah. In the U.S., it's called workers' compensation insurance. Okay. So, you know, if I get hurt, I file for a claim. And if the claim goes to court, the average is the equivalent of 200 office chairs. (laughs) (laughs) So do get your office chairs. We have another episode about Herman Miller. (laughs) Go get those ones. And you'll be happy that I plugged them in. <laughs> cool. That's awesome. So what about, so when you are thinking about, you know, the benefits of distributed work, you know, who does it benefit the most when you say like, you know, okay, it's going to be benefiting companies. Yes. In productivity. But what is the main benefit that people can get as a company to implement remote work in their company? Happier employees, not having their employees leave much, much, much more so now after the pandemic, because 80% of the workforce wanted to work from home, at least some of the time before the pandemic, and that number has held for the last decade. And during the pandemic, about 80% say they want to continue working from home. So those numbers haven't changed, but the pandemic has changed the, sort of galvanized the desire. And certainly it's created a lot of new opportunities such that if your employer won't let you, you can find one that will. Mm -hmm. I don't think we'd be having this conversation even after the pandemic were we not in severe talent shortages. Mm. And do you think that, you know, these people when we aren't happy or moving somewhere else, you know, how is it actually impacting Mm. the business strategy just as like their own company, for example? Like how can it impact them as their own profits and et cetera in a company. Like this is usually where people want to see like why does it actually have a big impact? Is there like things that are shown in studies so that there is actually a big impact on the company revenue or strategy? Yeah. In the US, we're at about an 18% quit rate. And that's the highest it's been since wow. the Bureau of Labor Statistics started recording the numbers and quit me Queens you know, it's not I was fired, I quit my job. So that's at a record high. And you think of losing that valuable employee, not only do you have to find a new one, and there's the cost of that, and hope that you found a good one, 
because the majority of employees quit in the first two years and half of them quit in the first six months and that's all that money out the door. Your oftentimes colleagues will leave when their friends leave at work. So you may have lost more than one person. All those projects they were involved in and the teams that they were on have just lost you know, a big chunk of time in bringing somebody else back up to speed and perhaps intellectual capital too. You know, that person may have been the only one on the team that knew about this or knew about that. And that's, you know, that's very costly to an organization. Do you think these companies that are, you know, known company that used to be very known for their campus, for their, you know, campus lives, their brand is all about going to the office and they are promoting or wanting their employees to go back to the office right now and they're having the strategy to bring them all back. What do you think about their strategy there? Like, what do you think will happen to them? It's not working out so well for a lot of them. <laughs> it's a little too early to say, but even the companies that have said, you know, pound the table, I want my employees back in the office, you have to be back here on April 1st. Not everybody's coming. In fact, the companies that I've been talking to, only about 40% are coming. So A, are they going to be able to get them back? There's also this, this trend of sort of structured flexibility. You know, you can come in Monday and Tuesday. Well, life doesn't happen that way. Work doesn't work that way. Things I need to do, the things I need to collaborate on are not always going to happen on a Monday and a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. And there's going to be days that I really feel the need to come into the office for even five days. And then there's going to be other weeks where I, I don't really have to come in at all. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we're all just feeling our way through this. Nobody has the answers. I mean, even somebody that says they want to go back to the office, I often think of the couple that you used to go out to dinner with all the time. And then you stopped going out to dinner with them, not because of the pandemic, but even before that. And then you say to your spouse, hey, why don't we get together with them? So you do. And then driving back in the car, you say, now I remember why we didn't get, why we stopped getting together <laughs> with them. <laughs> You know, all those wonderful things we remember about the office. I just wonder whether or not they're going to seem that wonderful when people get back. And the real problem is it's this sort of chicken and egg thing. People are coming back because they want to socialize, but when they get back, nobody's there. Or, you know, it feels like a big empty yeah. space. And so they're not getting what they need. And they sit there on Zoom meetings all day long and they think, well, why am I here? So the employers that are really trying to pull people back into the office are really fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, and I feel like it's just kind of the wrong battle when they are trying to find ratios of like, okay, one, two, three days in the office, but they're really completely missing the point of it is not about when, you know, which day is going to be the right day to go to the office. Like you have to think completely through all of how you're working and how mm -hmm. you're going to be tackling work now. It's not about location. It's really about how we're working, how we're making the work happen. This is what I've been saying for two years now. <laughs> because it's been two years that we're going through this. But I think slowly, like, I feel like, you know, the network that people are starting to get it, that it's actually no longer about the place and that those who will actually embrace a remote first culture, really think through, okay, how are we doing the work and how are we able to be effective wherever we are? And employees can just choose whatever, where they want to be and continue to be productive and collaborate productively as well uh, without the need of the office. And not just where they want to work, but when they want to work. The research yeah. has shown over the last couple of decades, it's even more important to people 
they value the ability to flex their time even more so than flexing their place. And it's about control. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's our life doesn't allow us to sit in one place for eight hours and be productive. That's not where we're not built to be marathoners. We're built to be sprinters. Mm. And a lot of research points to the 50 minute, you know, work for 50 minutes, take a, a break for, for 10 minutes. For some people, they just, you know, their, their lives aren't that linear. I know you're a, oh, yeah. you're a my mom. Life is, I was about to say, my <laughs> life is non-linear. It's just all over the place. And so, you know, if somebody wants you, you're a great employee, then they're going to have to be flexible about that. And I'm finding a lot of inflexibility about that, even more than flexibility about place. But, you know, you also think about the fact that not everybody is at their best at eight in the morning. Some people work best at eight at night. I mean, just their personality. So shouldn't we be allowing people to work when and where they work best? And for that matter, how? And you pointed out the the how issue. I think we've been operating in a sort of a triage mode for the last couple of years and just putting, you know, band-aids on arteries and figuring out how to how to just get through it. Because we always felt like we're going to go back next month or next month or next month or next year. And so we haven't put the systems in place to really make remote work effective. You know, I would have typically spent six months to a year working with a company prior to the pandemic, getting them ready to make the transition to what we now call hybrid work. And in that time would have dealt with the kinds of things that I think are stumbling blocks now. I feel like where we are right now is the equivalent of when we got cell phones only using them at home or when we got smartphones only using them to make phone calls. We're working with new tools, but we're working in old ways. Yes. Trying to replicate the water cooler, for example. I mean, who said the water cooler <laughs> was it was a great way to collaborate anyway? In fact, it wasn't. And... It's funny because the water cooler for me is such a like abstract concept because I don't even know what it is. Like, and it was like, because I never worked in an office before. And people said like, did the water cooler moment. I was like, okay. And I had to like portray like, what does it look like? You know, when they are in the, they have a, a water cooler, they kind of like, what they kind of put their, their <laughs> arm on it. And then they like have good moments. Like, I was just not getting like, what was the point? Oh, that's like, so funny. That's so, so funny. funny. I was like, why do we call this a water cooler moment? <laughs> but I mean, it's exclusive. It only counts the people that are, it only includes the people that are standing there and it excludes other people. And I think that there's so many things that we've learned from the pandemic about equity and inclusion that we should bring forward. And my biggest fear is that, you know, companies feel like, whew, we did remote. This hybrid thing's going to be easy. It's not. It's going to be hard. It's going to be so much harder. I mean, the funny thing is like I've seen, so I've seen one company doing hybrid before the, right before the pandemic hit. And the way, you know, that people used to be doing hybrid was just like people tuning in on their laptop from wherever they are to a meeting. And they just get to the experience of a meeting is happening or a workshop that is happening. And then it's like, okay, do you want to put your ideas? Okay, I'm going to write them down for you on a sticky note and then put it there. And then you can, the laptop is like on a little stool on the side. It looks so like inefficient. And then... To realize that them, when they went actually all remote and then everybody was on the same screen, everybody felt included and everybody felt like they were on the same level. And it actually became much more, all the people who were used to be remote kind of realized how much is much nicer now that everybody is kind of experiencing work and experiencing collaboration the same way as they're doing. And the whole experience is just much better. 
So let's not forget this. Once people go and want to mix both of them in the office, like, I think we have so much to rethink. There's so much opportunity for work disruption at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. like in terms of how we are doing things. No, I th- you're absolutely right. You know, the people that were working remotely before found it very much better when we went into the pandemic, because as you said, they were finally included. They were finally leveled the playing field. I think it also accommodates different personalities better, not just in terms of the neurodiverse, but in terms of introverts, for example. I mean, I'm an introvert. Half of the workforce leans toward introversion. And introverts think more slowly. We process things before we say them. Extroverts tend to blurt things out. So when you ask for opinions in a meeting, you're not hearing from the introverts. And by using asynchronous processes by or by using things like polls or by, you know, collaborating on a document in an async fashion, you're bringing a whole new personality to the thought pool. And that's critical. And it scares me to death that when companies are bringing people back, they're talking about flipping the ratio of desks to collaborative space from what used to be 70% desks and 30% collaboration to 30% desks and 70% collaboration. Where is that going to leave the introverts that come back to the office? You know, about 20% Mm -hmm. of the workforce doesn't want to continue working from home. They want to be in an office full time. Well, where are they going to work? Where are they going to find their privacy? And, you know, even to the point of it's been so wonderful over the last two years not to have to think of an excuse why I couldn't go out to dinner or why I didn't want to go to have drinks. I mean, it's just been this total relief, total (laughs) unburdening. (laughs) And to think about going back to the office and having to do that again, not that I will because I don't go to an office, But it's just horrible. And it's just not right that we introverts have had to endure an extrovert's world for as long as we have. And the Mm. same same with people that are neurodiverse. Even things people that are pessimists, for example, think more slowly than optimists. So just, you know, we've really got to understand and accommodate for a huge variety of personalities in the workforce. Right. And what are the latest trends that you've seen related to all of this? For example, maybe in the beginning of 2022, uh, what are the latest things that are coming up with the change of slowly the going back to the office, the like people are assimilating more remote first? What do you see? In the U.S., we're behind Europe. Really just about April 1st was when some of the companies started to put their foot down and said, you know, we want you back in the office. So it's kind of hard to gauge right now. Based on the badge data, it looks like about 40% of the workforce is back. And and that's nationwide. It's in, for some reason, in Texas, it's 70%. You know, they're in certain industries, it's higher than others. So we're seeing a slow trickling back. There's fear of taking public transportation still. We don't like that thought of being in a you know, a subway and that close to that many people. So that's a concern for some. Childcare is a huge concern. It doesn't get much play in the United States. You know, we don't even, mm. there is no even mandatory maternity leave or let alone paternity leave. And that's uh, something I realized that actually America has never knew what it was. I never knew that what it was to be able to spend time with your kids. Or like, you get a lot of people coming up and say like, oh, it's so nice now. I can work from home. I can see my kids in the morning and we there for them when they come back from school. And then I was like, that's not normal. It's like, because for me, it's just the norm. It's just like, this is just what it is. It's always how I've been 
vision, you know, the way I work, you know, I'm always, and my partner as well, we both work from home, we're both present for our children. But it's just surprising because I was thinking it's true. If you, my parents used to be entrepreneurs also working from home, I had their business at home. So for me, always been part of my life. And to think that actually, no, it's not everyone who have the chance to actually, they have to leave very early in the morning, go to work, come back, and they just put their kids to bed and that's it. And then come to realize now that a lot of people have discovered so much of the freedom and you get so much more when you are actually having the freedom of choosing when and where you're working. Yeah. And the pandemic has put more of the load on women. So a lot of women had to leave the workforce during the pandemic as a result. Mm -hmm. So I think some of those things have started to bubble up in the C-suite, again, because of the talent shortages. You know, they need good people. So I'm hearing, at least from my clients, more attention to being given to parental leave, to for childcare subsidies, flexible start and end times, you know, things along those lines. So what kind of work actually, we didn't pinpoint exactly like how people work with you as, uh, you know, how people work with global workplace analytics. So. Can you explain a bit briefly, like what kind of work you do and how does one you know, do business with you? Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we can connect you here if you want to work with Dave. Yeah, right. Here's what you can do. I call myself a research-based consulting firm because about half of what we do is research. Just keeping up with everything affects people in the workplace. So that's health and wellness and it's where you work and it's flexibility. And it's certainly been largely focused on flexibility, but just, you know, giving people the opportunity to do their best work, to be their best selves as a whole. Since the beginning of the pandemic, it's obviously been in particular slated to the remote work. And so a company will hire me to come in and help at the beginning of the pandemic, help them decide what they wanted to do, what their strategy should be going forward, help them think about those decisions, make the right decisions, determine the management readiness through interviews and focus groups, whether or not their management is going to be resistant, doing surveys to figure out what the employees want and looking for gaps in where they need additional training, training for virtual work practices, for having good meetings, for equity so that people aren't passed over for promotions or compensation increases because they work at home and putting mm. in, in place. I mean, for, for a lot of them, it's doing things that they should have been doing all along, like managing by results and teaching them how to come up with good goals and how to actually manage by results. It seems like just about everything that a company needs to do to be good at remote and hybrid work will make them a better company, a better performing company. Mm -hmm. In the office as well, because, yes. you know, unless if we're nine floors, nine miles or nine time zones away, we're still kind of working, you know, virtually. And so, you know, it really I, I hate making this conversation about remote work because it's not like you don't need to know what the people are doing when they're at the office. You know, we don't just have to monitor those people that are not at the office. The highest highest shopping time is on Amazon is during working hours before the pandemic. So. That wasn't really working out so well. You don't know that they're working just because you can see the back of their heads. And we've got to get to a point where, you know, it's trust-based and it, it's what you do and it's not who likes you or who you are. Those are all yeah. solid, good, solid management issues. I love that you're saying that all these better practices are not just formable work. Yeah. 
any companies that would apply like remote first mentality, which means, you know, digital first, all the rethinking how you're working, how you're collaborating better, how you're actually like making work happen. It's going to be good for you, even if you choose in the end to go back in the office or to have an office in the end. Yeah. I love that you take that approach. One of our large government agencies uh, about, oh gosh, might be six years ago now, was renovating one of their facilities, their headquarter facilities in Washington. And the head of the agency felt very strongly that people should work flexibly, that people don't need a big office. In fact, they don't need an assigned space at all. So the whole building went from being able to house 2,500 people to being able to house over 4,000 employees because not everybody was there. But she had a line that I, I really loved, and it was that remote work doesn't create management problems, it reveals them. And so if you're not managing people by results, if you don't trust your people, if you don't have good metrics in place, if you don't have good technology in place, you know, all those things have been revealed. Which is maybe pandemic. why, you know, this great resignation of people leaving, like going remote, actually, even if they maybe were having the opportunity to work remotely, this has covered a, probably a lot of like massive issues in the company. And this kind of like comes back to them being like, okay, this just doesn't work for me. I have to leave. Either it's toxic or the way work is happening is just all over the place. And it's just, yeah, all the underlying things that you wouldn't see because normally just things are done in person and you kind of like surf over work, you know, when now there's nothing of that. So you actually need to be able to access all the different parts of the company might have a link to this great resignation thing. Yeah. I like to call it the great reevaluation thing. Yeah. The great revolution. Yeah. 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 Because we're reevaluating our lives. You know, we've spent two years now with our family, enjoying not having to commute. And I'm not talking about everybody and I'm not a promoter of all remote. I never have been, you know, I think hybrid is best. Mm -hmm. Halftime is about the sweet spot for most people. But, you know, we've changed. We fundamentally changed. And I've got a client that's a law firm, for example, and they've got lawyers that are saying, you know, I don't want to go back to that rat race. I'm getting out of the industry. I'm not just quitting the company. I'm quitting the industry. Mm -hmm. And people deciding that, you know, I can live somewhere else. I can live somewhere that's less expensive and less hectic and safer. And even if that means taking a lower salary, I'm willing to do it. It's empowerment, you know. But again, it's because employers are hungry. Employees are hungry for talent. All right. You know, they wouldn't be making these accommodations, let's call them, because that's, I think, what they think mm-hmm. in their minds. I say their minds. A lot of managers really get this. They've been at home, too. They've enjoyed it. And even prior to the pandemic, what we would find is that when we had a resistant manager, once they began doing it themselves, they got it. And they said, oh, yeah, I can trust my people. And so that was kind of the transition. So now they've had two years of doing it. There's also the sustainability side. I mean, you know, you just can't deny when in two weeks we had cleaner air and cleaner water and there's an opportunity to do what's good, do what's right for the environment through remote work. Although it doesn't just happen. It's it's something that we're learning is that, in fact, traffic went up during parts of the pandemic. Really? Yes, exactly. And it's because instead of doing all those errands on your way to and from work, you tend to make single trips. And single trips are actually more toxic to the environment than one long trip. We saw road rage increasing. 
more <laughs> accidents, not less accidents. So you take cars off the road and people start going faster. So I think there's something we need to learn about how to be more environmentally conscious in working from home. Think about other research that you've made around the topic of remote work. Is there like a moment that you realized you really had a strong assumption for something and then you just realized after doing the research that you were completely wrong? Well, early in the pandemic, it became apparent that it was the younger people that were having the hardest time. And everybody kind of scratched their head and said, well, wait a minute, they're supposed to be the ones that are tech savvy. But then we started to realize it's because they likely live in smaller places. You know, they don't have a spare room to call an office. Mm -hmm. And one of the success indicators for work at home is having a dedicated space. You can only sit at the dining room table for so long. And, and then there's also the element that a lot of people meet their spouses at work. And for younger people, work is a social place. It's, you know, where they get their social networks. So that was missing. That was a surprise. I'm trying to think of what else. Now, one of the things that we've learned is that racial minorities enjoy working from home more and are more resistant to going back because they don't have to face the microaggressions that go mm. on during the day. It was a super good video. I will ping it in the show notes that we're actually talking about microaggression at work how it feels like when you are, you know, someone who's dealing with microaggression every day. It was really good. I will share it to you and I also add it to the show notes, but it's actually like the link to this. And that made me realize that actually I probably wouldn't want to go to the office either. <laughs> it was happening to me yeah, that way. I actually posted well. one on LinkedIn. We may be talking about the same one. Maybe maybe you posted it. Every... Maybe, maybe I discovered it because of you. <laughs> maybe that's the case. <laughs> Could be. But I just said, you know, everybody should watch this. It affected me the same way. It's like, wow, can you imagine having to deal with that? Yeah. I'll add it to the show notes so people can go and, and, and go watch it. It's a really, it's a good one. It really like holds your heart. Yeah. Yeah. We continue to struggle also with the wrong concept that innovation happens in groups. You know, when I hear companies talk about the need to get people back to the office, often it's because it's for innovation and we can't innovate mm. unless people are together. The research... And there's even a meta-study that was done on it recently, a meta-study of the research on innovation. There's no study that says it happens better in groups. In fact, half of the innovation process is the creative process. And we're more creative when we're alone, in the shower, taking a walk, in nature. Those are when we have our most creative ideas. And in order to commercialize those ideas and to vet them and turn them into something, often takes collaboration with others, although there is obviously the lone inventor. So there's two sides of it. In rebuilding, restructuring our offices, we need to consider that we need the quiet places as well as the collaborative places. And even those are different. I mean, the research shows that there's kind of a, a team privacy that's needed. It's like, well, you know, I trust you, Daphne, but I don't want to talk too loud because those other people over there might be listening. And we really need to have that sense of trust to allow a team to innovate. I, I love all the discussion we had today, Kate. It was so nice to properly meet you as well and just hear you have so much experience and you know so much. You have like eyes everywhere on what's happening in the world of remote work and all research. Thank you so much for the work that you do and thank you for coming on the show. I can't believe an hour went by. <laughs> thank you for asking such great questions. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Remote First. You can find all links and show notes in the episode description. And if you found value in this show, we'd love your rating on your listening app of choice. 
Thank you for being here. See you next time.